Hey, what's up? It's Nick Pagliocchini from This Week. I'm Nick Pagliocchini, the podcast. Obviously, that is where you are right now in the uh, virtual realm. And thank you so much for being a subscriber and tuning in, catching my updated episodes of things for you to do in and around the Southland to expand out on your weekend, not just the big things, but some of the smaller things in your own backyard. Now, what I learned in Season 1 and what I'm enjoying in Season 2 is being able to talk to people and conduct some interviews and really feature them here in Season 2. But sometimes those stories go long. And some of the guests have really in-depth backgrounds and have really added themselves to the fabric of Southern California and deserve to have their story heard and uh, really give some of that anecdotal information some room to breathe. With that said, I'm going to embark on a supplement to This Weekend with Nick Pagliocchini by launching In Conversation with Nick Pagliocchini, a semi-infrequent, well, chat, if you will, uh, that gives some room for those interviews that run a little bit longer and have a little bit more in-depth information outside of just fun activities for you to do over the weekend, but also getting to meet the folks and find out what makes them tick and how they came to become artists and performers and event producers and being able to share their stories with you. So for this first installment, I'd like to introduce you to Buster Caldwell, an incredibly talented, well, young man for sure, at least young at heart, who has a background in art and magic, is also a mentalist, loves things, Halloween, horror and haunt. Uh, things that go bump in the night, but really has some interesting insights into growth and development. Also, how you can learn to be your best self and put yourself out there, not miss those opportunities that really will help to move you forward in life and uh, in the weekend or through the weekend in general. So anyway, without further ado, here's Buster Caldwell. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it greatly. Thanks for inviting me. This is awesome. Of course. So talk to me about you. Let's talk about like, if you could put like a why on a Buster. I'm trying to think like, what what's young Buster like? How did you get into this? Because I haven't even described exactly, you know, your many, many talents. You're very diverse in what you can do. But um, when you were a child, did you always enjoy performing? Is that something for you that was a good outlet or was that something right. done so, that path? So, so we're going to do the quick childhood wrap up. Sure. <clears throat> um, so go through traumas was, if you want to. Was, we'll, to we'll get to those later and probably cry a lot. Okay. Uh, so when I was three, I was totally obsessed with art. Okay. Like I, I was drawing and sculpting at age three, anything I could draw on, any piece of paper that was okay. blank was mine. Um, and then when I was five, I saw my first magicians on tv and i was completely obsessed and this is a true story true story i swear um we watched the show on tv and i'm at my grandparents house and afterwards they can't find me so the family goes looking for me okay i was in the kitchen i had an adam's family lunchbox at the time i had shoved my winnie the pooh into my adam's family lunchbox and grabbed one of my grandfather's saws out of the garage they caught me just before i went to town on pooh bear so you from three years old Started that experience. From three literally. was art and from five was magic. And so, and that was dismemberment. But I mean, <laughs> in a way, Pooh Bear specifically was going to become the Pooh Bear was vital. Yes. That, but it was the character you saw in half, correct? Is that from that show that you saw originally? Yeah. yeah I saw the magician. I'm like, that looks really cool. And I wanted to try it. And they, they caught me in time. Luckily, Pooh Bear was okay. To go back to the three-year-old artist though, what was that kind of, what does a three-year-old artist look like? What is that? What did that look like for you? What was kind of there? I mean, granted, we're, I'm talking, asking you to tap into a few years ago. Rough. But, just a few. Yeah. But for, even before that magic show and getting into that whole concept, what was kind of 
if you can remember or what people have told you as three-year-old Buster was like with that art kind of idea. I thought I was an excellent artist at the time, but you know, that's, that's me. Um, I just really like, I've always liked creating. Okay. I've always, and you know, I, I love creating visual art. I, I, I haven't always been good with words, either written or spoken. And so being able to create something visual or tangible that communicates what I see and what I feel has always been important to me. And then as I got older and got into performance stuff, off stage, I'm still like, like the weird twitchy, quirky thing you're seeing, right? This isn't a character. This really is me. Right. So, and I, I kind of pull it together more sometimes when I'm on stage, but being a neurodivergent weirdo my entire life, I always struggled to connect with people. And so performance and art was what I eventually, I didn't realize at the time, but that's what I've used my entire life to connect with people because I didn't normally know how to sure. do that. Now let's, you, you brought up a term that is somewhat new to a lot of people. Let's Weirdo? talk. No, <laughs> no, because they listen to me. <laughs> oh, so they, got it. They're okay, well, good. well okay. aware of that. But let's talk about neurodivergence because yes. that is something that is a little bit more new and a little bit more nuanced because it was one of those things that applies to people differently in different ways. Um, for you, how does it work? Like, what's you know your version of neurodivergence? I guess and the best also way. neurodivergence, like a term that I had never heard my entire sure, life. Sure, I, I understand. It's I, something very new. I think I was fifty when I first heard that term, and it was so. It's one of those words where the second I heard it, I knew exactly what it was, and I knew it was me. Like it was just like, where has this word been my entire life? I've, I've needed this word for so long, and here it is to be able to communicate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so neuro weirdo means uh, I discovered that I was dyslexic right after I graduated high school. So that was good timing. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it was one of the things where it it was just like the collective zeitgeist, just us as a whole. Nobody talked about right. dyslexia and. Because of that, not enough people knew about dyslexia. Right. Okay. Right. So it was kind of the combination of both. Um, so all of a sudden I learned this word and I'm like, oh my God, that explains so much. That explains why I've always had trouble with things like, like writing my alphabet letters backwards when I was a kid and things like that that frustrated my parents and my teachers. And then when I was in my early thirties, ADHD became more common topic. It wasn't a taboo thing. And we started talking about it more. And I was like, oh, that explains so much more of my life. Right. Okay. And then <laughs> another true story. Um, about two years ago, uh, I, I was, because I heard the term neurodivergent, I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. And so I'm studying that word. And I'm seeing like, what does that really mean? And I have quite a few friends who are on the autism spectrum. Of course. And the more I learned about autism, I was like, a lot of this really, really just clicks for me and feels right. Uh, and I went to my doctor and I said, hey, so I've been learning more about autism and I think that I might be on the spectrum should I get tested. And I'm paraphrasing her here, um, but her answer was essentially, duh. So that was a fun thing to learn at like 52 about yourself. Because I'm looking at my whole life through that lens and like, oh, like, because <laughs> a lot of it's a trauma thing. You memorize no, horrible right. things from your past. And like, I'm looking back at all these traumatic moments that still stick in my brain going, yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah. That, yeah. That makes sense. Oh, those all made sense. Yeah. So that's what it's been is like just slowly learning about myself. And in a weird way, um, my performances were going more in that direction already being this, I don't want to say character, sure. but, but really being my eccentric self on stage 
and no, not trying I, to create a character. Right, and right? I think that that. So for me, who have seen you perform, um, I see that authenticity purely because I also know you separately, and I know exactly how much you bring to it. But I think that's why I wanted to sit down and talk to you specifically, not just because you are an incredible performer, you have an amazing mentalist skills, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but uh, and what that means. But also, you're very open and you're very honest, and you are very clear and transparent with many things, including things that may have been more taboo, as you've already said, that, you know, I'm 42, you're 53, like, it's in, we're in that range where we didn't talk about dyslexia. Right, we, we are talk- right on that cusp. Correct. You know, we, we had parents and grandparents who, you, you didn't say the C word, because if you said the C word, right. someone was going to get cancer. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, we didn't talk about any of this stuff. Right. And yeah, we're right on that cusp. Correct. And it's, it's weird that, you know, I, I've had mentors my whole life for art and performing and all that. But now, like, the people who I consider my mentors a lot of times are way younger than me because sure. they're the kids who are being raised knowing that they are on the autism spectrum, knowing they have ADHD, and embracing that early on. Right. And they're the ones kind of teaching me how to retroactively navigate that world now. Which I think, too, but then you're also providing that historical context, as we've just talked about, of where it was. And so even though you're looking to the next generation and having that because they've been able to live openly and freely Mm -hmm. in that regard, you're also able to say, and this is my biggest component, I really try to be a student of life and I try to encourage people to be a student of life. Absolutely. So that you not only know where we are, but how we got here and we came from. So let's go back to five-year-old Buster and then move into grade school and junior high Buster. What did you look like? So much awkwardness. Oh my God. But that's what I'm saying. (laughs) So I think that's where it is, but also so much talent. And I'm sure even if it was through a lens that may in that era and time period not have been received that way. So talk to me about some of the inspiration. So between art and magicians, where did you kind of start building that interest as you were getting, you know, growing up and moving through your, you know, grade school, teens and 20s, even before you hit 30s and started making these discoveries about yourself? How did that all kind of come about? Because I know it didn't just happen overnight, although granted, you're cutting Winnie the Pooh in half. Right. Yeah. No, that was was an early start. Right. Uh, Yeah, I totally forgot the question now. What? No, it's <laughs> fine. No, 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 that's totally fine. So, I mentioned I'm a neurodivergent weirdo. No, it's, it and it's perfect. And I, the honesty <laughs> is the best part. But no, where were you as you were in grade right, school? Right, the influences and stuff. Yeah, I, like, okay. Because I want to um, talk, because I mean, we come from an era when television was very different. It wasn't streaming. It was, but you also had, and I think when we talk about the mentalist thing, this is very specific to some of the tricks that you're able to do and some of the different things and presentations you can do. We experienced the David Copperfields of the world who did these amazing performances that had, you know, mysticism and magic to them on a television screen and things disappeared. So how long before that even happened? Because that would have been more in your like teens and 20s. Right. What happened in grade school? Like take me up through, you know, getting out of that first five-year-old magician up until, you know, getting kind of where that meandering story goes. Um, I, I was the most awkward and nerdy kid I could possibly be through all Were there any like subjects in school that you liked or in at or enjoyed? Art and lunch. That was about it. That's that fine. Really... I mean, everybody loves recess. Yeah. Even if you don't like, you know, going out in the sun, you can always definitely go and do something a little bit more fun. Or you maybe were like me and you had lunch with the teacher in the art room. <laughs> Lucky. So no, I, yeah. but I think, but I think that's a big part of it is I think that so much we don't, it's when we sit down, we think about that and we don't give enough credence to where we came from. 
and how that developed us out. So it doesn't matter that you were a nerdy kid who had all these unique things. It has helped create the person that you are now, which is incredibly talented and successful down, you know, Same what you're doing. Tough. <laughs> Um, but, but okay, back to that. Yeah. Um, but elementary school, junior high, and then high school yeah. was where I found books. Okay. Because my family were not big readers. There were a lot of books. Are you born and raised in Southern California? Where yes. Are you from? Okay, I've so you're from lived here. I've in Orange County almost my entire life. Okay. okay. Um, so, yeah, the, the school libraries were my only real access to books, aka knowledge. Sure. You know, we're, we're, we're pre. We're not only pre-internet, we're pre-VHS tape at that point. Of course. So if it wasn't in a book, there's almost no way to learn it other than a mentor. Um, so yeah, but everything I learned early on about magic and about art all came from books. Wow. Okay. And so I spent, at this point, I've done, you know, we're, we're, you're talking about the mentalism and yeah. I sort of transitioned from being more of a kid's entertainer to doing something a little more hefty and serious okay. with the mentalism. Um, but for the last 20 years, I've spent almost all of my time performing in libraries. That, that's been my main venue because I know the power of books and how transformative they are. And I love being part of a summer reading program that gets kids into the library and gets them not just reading books, but also excited about reading books. And using that as not only a way to explore the world and have fun adventures, but also to learn things. And I, I can't think of anything that's affected me more significantly than the books I read growing up. And truly, some of the best friends you probably made were in the pages of a book. And Back the then, best, absolutely. Which, and I'm, <laughs> but I'm even saying, like, I know for myself growing up, and not to, you know, commandeer it, but I know that was I voraciously read. And I developed my imagination. And I developed the way that I interacted with the world and the way that I spoke to people and the way that I thought, which has always been slightly different. Mm -hmm. Because I like to look at the world through this lens that's very unique and very different. And then even going, going back to our original introductions into media with the way the television used to be with magic shows or to be, you know, going to a theater. I mean, and that's something we should talk about as well, because what inspired you down that path? Because there are certain things like the Monster Kids Club, which I want to talk about a little bit, um, that have inspirations in these old style variety programs have a kind of a, like akin to being able to have that you know, um, Saturday late night movie watching thing, but it a little bit more approachable for a younger mm -hmm. audience. Uh, but it's such a thing that we don't have anymore. You know, we know who Elvira is, right? Or we know who Vampira is, or we know any of these different people, Wolfman Jack or whoever would do these original things. We've heard about them. We, you know, it's a historical lesson now, but you don't find that on a streaming service, right? So talk to me about how that all kind of came about for you, because I'm sure there was a certain amount of influence, as you said, things for you with the mentalist angle, which we keep talking about. We will get to, I promise. <laughs> promise. Um, we'll do it. But it's getting a little heavier for you. And that makes sense because it doesn't take a creepy, scary, but it may take a little bit more gravity with it. So right. um, what were some of the things that inspired you with media, I guess, with television, with film? Media, when you were, I, I think performance wise and I... <clears throat> at this point, I feel like I'm an anti-character. I, I worked really hard to strip away any kind of character work that is just as authentically me as I can be on stage. But when I was trying to kind of find myself, I like Elvira and Pee Wee Herman. Those were like, those are literally like my media parents. Which I is grew up really watching those two. Good, and, you look great. If that's mom and dad. Aww. <laughs> but also, no, but I think that because that's a very specific lens, you've got a very unique perspective on life 
coming through that. Um, but with that, again, media for that time period was also a bit of a developmental point for us. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes for a lot of folks, it was a babysitter. Which it really oh, it absolutely was, but it is now, but in a different way. It comes yeah. in a mobile format and a tablet, and you can't go to a restaurant without experiencing that. But with that, um, going back to more into the magician part of it, because again, I remember so much, and then even better is when they started doing behind the magic. Oh God, the mass magician! That was yes. such a scandal in the magic world. It was good heavens. We but, recovered, uh, <laughs> but that's the thing, and I think because that and kind of goes to where our world is here now in 2024. Mm -hmm. People want BTS. People want the behind the scenes. Yes. People want to be able to pull back the curtain and see the wizard, whatever the wizard looks like. They do. And, and so, you know, we we're talking about my childhood yeah. and growing up and all of that, and so much of that, and, and you know, the weird thing is my family was not a refuge. I think they pushed harder than anybody else for me to try to be normal and try to fit in because they had no idea. Right. Like they had no idea why my brain was different and why I didn't think I wasn't trying to be weird. Sure. No, just who I was. But you know, for better or worse, they wanted me to fit in and have a normal Correct. life. So yeah, I you know, spending the first 30 years of my life kind of trying to fit in or create an image that I thought other people wanted to see. Sure. Okay. So even when I did spooky, scary stuff early on, you know, I think it was early in high school, like my sophomore year, where I really embraced being a horror fan. Got it. So at this point, like the, the clothes that my family had bought me over the years and was like, this is what everybody else wears. You should be wearing this. And that's when I chucked all that stuff and started ordering t-shirts from the back of Fangoria magazine. That's a magazine for horror fans. It's been around for a really long time in yes. case you're not familiar. Um, yes. <laughs> ooh, quick, ooh, quick tangent. Okay. Yes. This is, this is a brief look into my childhood. Um, so I was about, I'm going to say 13 or 14. Okay. Um, I came home with a Fangoria magazine and my mother freaked out. She, she was horrified. She was constantly trying to keep me from being interested in monsters, horror, any of that stuff. I don't know why she was so obsessed with me not indulging in that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I was forbidden to have Fangoria in the house. She gave me, around that same time, a box of my grandfather's old Playboy and Penthouse magazines. I was allowed to have Playboy and Penthouse magazine, but not Fangoria. So I had the Playboys and Penthouses like in a drawer right. where mom knew where they were. The Fangorias were under the mattress where she didn't know they were hiding. That's why. <laughs> now, real quick, don't need the backstory, but like, do you have a religious background at all or no? Was yeah, there... We were religious-ish. Ish, adjacent. Yeah, okay. yeah my, my mother was Christian. My father was Catholic. Um, okay. I kind of grew up between the two and then okay at this point i'm a born-again atheist i finally Which found my path is good no and i think that's fantastic to know yourself now but also i think it's so interesting because that even speaks to where was your mom's mindset right of saying oh the fangoria we can't do yet here is you know this activity so and i think that I think, was less the religious thing and more of the this is just making a weirder right thing and, and yeah so from <laughs> once i realized Kind of like now we have the internet, and so we know we're not the only autistic person out there. We know we're not right. the only person with ADHD out there, right. right? So it was like picking up a Fangoria magazine was the first time I realized, no, they're wrong. I'm not the only weirdo. There, there's pages full of weirdos, right? And there's a few thousand weirdos buying this magazine every month, just like me. I'm not alone, right? And so that was like a big revelation for me. And so yeah, that's when I started buying the the monster t-shirts and things from the back of that. And I went through my goth phase wearing all black. I didn't even know what goth was. I hadn't I had I would even love heard, to have seen I had Do you have an emo heard, phase or no? 
I think I've been emo from birth. <laughs> There's always been a smidge of emo in there. Okay. Um, but yeah, so so all of a sudden, like I'm like going to high school. I've got the the black duster. I've got silver rings on every finger, big gargoyles and junk, and wearing like an Evil Dead Two T-shirt. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> That's amazing. So what was the turning point? Because we've kind of have danced around a lot of different things. What was the turning point for you, maybe in your 30s or, you know, coming in out of your 20s, for you to maybe not feel 100% comfortable in your own skin, but realize that you were different and it was, you were going to do what you were going to do? Right. Um, so, so early on, like 20s, I wanted to create a wacky character. I, I tried the dark thing when I was in high school and... I felt more myself, and there were people who I connected with because of that, um, but it didn't fully click. And I went through a sure. whole phase of trying to be like a horror-themed magician when okay. I was in high school, and that didn't work at all. Um, the world wasn't ready for it. Then Chris Angel comes and steals my bit and does it all. Um, anyway, so I tried that, and then I, like, Roger Rabbit was another pinnacle okay. moment for me. And so I'm like, I'm going to be this wacky, crazy character, which I'm really not. Like, I'm, I'm actually, in normal life, I'm a very quiet, very introverted person right. most of the time. On stage is different. No, I understand. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to create that kind of character, and it just, it never clicked. And, but I did get better as a performer. Okay. And so around 30, you're right, that's, that was the junction, really. Right. <clears throat> I was around 30, and I realized that the one thing that I felt was missing from my performances was the comedy. Like, okay. I could get laughs, but I didn't get laughs as reliably and as often as I wanted to. Okay. The magic was good, the the production values, all that stuff was good, but the comedy. And so I went on a quest to study comedy. Um, and so I went and I took comedy lessons at uh, Flappers in Burbank. Okay. Lovely place. Got it. Um, so I did that, and they were explaining that the thing with comedy, if you want to be a really good comic, um, the thing is, it's not about making up wacky, zany things. Like, you watch an improv troupe, and it's like, oh, this wacky situation. Right. And, and clowns are like, oh, wacky props and stuff. And, and in stand-up, really, the best comics, if, if you look at, like, who's really, really funny in stand-up sure. comedy... They're very genuine. Correct. Like, and so that was the lesson is you tap into what's real, like find the things that are real. And then you find the funny within that thing, but don't start with something that you think is funny. Find something genuine and real, be a real person. Right. And then the funny will come. And that, that was really eye opening. And then expanding my comedy education, I went and did a, uh, Beginning class with the groundlings up in LA. Okay. Right. That's where a lot of the a Saturday lot of Night Live alum yep. have come from. Cut their teeth and get it up there. Uh, yeah. Including Elvira MP Wee. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I go and do the groundlings and from day one, they explain the difference between stand up and clown versus improv is that people think in improv, you're trying to be wacky and funny. That's not what, what you're doing. Um, what you do is you're just there. You're just like in the moment and the funny will happen. You just start doing the scene and you don't try to be funny. You wait for things to come naturally or organically out of who's there. So you, really you're just, even though you might be playing a character in a scene, sure. you're still kind of being yourself and then you're reacting to the real genuine things that happen around you. And that was pretty eye-opening. And then I went and studied with who I think might be the greatest living clown, Avner Eisenberg, Avner okay. the eccentric. Um, <clears throat> just amazing performer and phenomenal teacher. Um, and his approach to clowning is 
is, and we're not talking like birthday party clown, we like theatrical clown. Theatrical clown, <laughs> or um, even more like a vaudeville style clown, like if people have seen that, is that? Right, or, or he's, he's like Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil, that, okay, that, that style of clowning, clowning. Yeah. got it, okay. Um, so, studying with Avner, and what he taught me is that unlike improv or stand-up, you're, you're not trying for the clown, just exists, and the more you stop trying to be funny, and you just exist in that moment, and funny things will come to you. Funny things okay. will happen. And then you, it was all the same goddamn lesson. It was all the same lesson over and over again. I just none of them had studied the other disciplines, but Correct. all of them told me the same thing. Be yourself. Don't try to be a character. Don't try to be wacky and silly. Be you. And a lot of people have a hard time with that. I, mm -hmm. I've worked with students who I've coached now and they're like, no, cause this is, be funny. It's like, that's not funny. That's you trying to be funny. That's you acting funny. Right. We're all clowns. The human condition is being a clown. Like, if, if you examine your day, how many times did you do something stupid in an average day that you were really glad nobody else saw? Right. Right. And that's what, what a real clown is. Sure. Is leaning into that stuff. Right. And so when I'm on stage, it's really, I've, I've got some jokes and bits that, that I do, and they're all genuine. They're all things that I've written about myself right. and my actual experience that but I've it's made not self-deprecation. <laughs> It's right. specifically leaning into humanity and right. your own humanity and either, you know, your, where you excel or your shortcoming. So it's not because so many times, a lot of times, especially now you go to YouTube and you go to Instagram or you go to TikTok and a lot of the comics that are very popular don't really lean into that genuineness. It no. is either 100% crowd work and all they're doing is roasting people up one side and down the other. Right. Or... It is a shtick. Yeah. As opposed to, you can't make this shit up. Truly. You can't, it's not, if you don't have it, you know, you're creating something else. And I think that's why I, your style and brand of performance is really impressive to observe. And I think more so experience because as you've already referenced, and I have been to some of the shows, you really involve your audience. You pay attention to your audience those other people that are on the playbill with you, you're leaning into them and you have learned their strengths. And I think that that's a really important part as a takeaway for our, us talking today. There's so much that you need to learn about yourself mm -hmm. that then helps you to learn about other people. But beyond that, it's being able to really tap into that as a resource for success. Yep. And success meaning, it doesn't mean you're making millions of dollars necessarily, that'd be lovely. It would, fabulous, I'm not but opposed. You're, but you're successful in accomplishing what you went out to do. And I think that's really a big encouragement in this 2024 modern era that we really need to lean into because we've somehow have lost a little bit of the focus and a little bit of that notion. Absolutely. So let's talk about The Mentalist because this is not just a show that was on CBS that was fantastic and I loved it thoroughly. It was. And it involved the California FBI, no, the California Bureau of Investigation, the CBI. If you know, you know. <laughs> You can probably find it somewhere streaming on Paramount Plus with CBS or whatever. I, however that plays out. I don't know who has it. But talk to me about what a mentalist is. Because okay. I think that's a big component of what you do in all aspects. Even if you're not, if you're doing more of the clowning stuff, when you transition, some of your really, really impressive things have to do with mentalism. Right, we're going to jump back to get there real sure, quick. Sure, of course. Um, so yeah, that journey to like realize that I didn't want to be a character. I want to be myself because that's what's going to connect. And so the more I stripped all the way and I was just me, I wasn't like super vulnerable me. I was the me that I would be in a normal social situation sure. on stage. But that transformed my shows completely. 
I was not always a good performer. I can admit that now. For a okay. long time, I wasn't a good performer because I was too busy trying to impress an audience and not just being myself and have fun with them. And especially as a kid's performer, kids are like dogs. They smell fear and they will they eat do. you alive. I've seen it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the more I was just me, the more they, even though I'm a, you know, we may not click as friends or anything, but the fact that I was being me. Right felt relatable and they enjoyed the performances more and I connected better. And then as time went on, I started stripping more and more away. It's like, okay, so, so the me that I would normally put out if I was at a party or a social gathering, what if I dug a little bit deeper? What if I cut some of the layers and now I exposed what more of my closer friends see and put that on stage? Cause that's when I can start talking about being neurodivergent and those Correct. sort of things. Right. And oh my God. Like, like the, the performances changed so much and the connection to the audience and the reactions from the audience changed so much. Um, and I'm going to go on a quick tangent real That's quick. Fine. Um, I was still a little bothered that I couldn't be a character because I, okay. I like the idea of being a character. I get it. And so I started studying some of my comedy idols. I'm like, why, why can this person be this weirdo character on stage and I can't do that? Who were some of your comedy idols that to give you like a reference point? Emo Phillips. Okay. Emo Phillips, great comic, was big in like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Um, and he's still around. Um, you can find his stuff <clears throat> on YouTube. Like you can see a lot of it. So like surprisingly, it's quite impressive. So a few years ago, I actually went to a Puddles Pity Party concert. Oh, okay. And Emo was in the audience. Wasn't even performing. He was just there. Wild. Okay. So as we're leaving, I see Emo and I go up and I'm like, Emo, you, or one of my comedy heroes, like literally in high school, my nerd friends were memorizing Monty Python lines. Yes. I was memorizing Emo's Live with a Hasty Pudding album. Got it. <laughs> I tell him that. And, and if you don't know Emo, go look him up before you listen to this bit. Uh, Emo looks at me a thousand percent genuine and sincere and says, thanks. That means a lot to me. And in that moment, it all comes like, he's not a character. Right. He really, that insanely weird, gawky thing you see on stage, that's really him. Right. And I actually did a couple of gigs with him after that. And he is a thousand percent that same weirdo offstage. <laughs> Maybe even more so in some ways. And as I met other stand-ups who I loved and things, I'm like, oh my God, you really are, you're not doing an act. It seems like an act because it's so weird and outside the box, but you are literally being yourself on stage and the audience is eating it up. That's wild. So yeah, I started doing that and then... So, so when I was younger, I tried hiding behind a character. Of course. And th this is a conversation I have with a lot of magicians. Again, when I'm like directing and coaching yeah, other performers, um, I will literally watch a magician stand behind, like they'll have a table that their props are on. They will stand behind that table while they perform because they are literally afraid of their audience. They're literally putting a barrier, a physical barrier between them and their audience when they work. And even when they go out, they always have to have some sort of a prop or something like it's a shield mm -hmm. in case the audience doesn't like them. They're going to block the attacks. Um, so I'm constantly telling you, get out from behind your props, right. get out there, get upstage to the audience. Um, and then eventually I realized as a kid's entertainer, my big claim to fame was balloons. And after 30 years of being a kid's entertainer and balloon artist and 20 years of doing that full time and being very successful with it, I realized that I was still hiding behind my balloons. Right. Because so I knew no matter shield, what, that yeah, was, right. it, whatever I did, it, it, it could be the worst bit in the world. It could totally bomb. But as long as I make a cool balloon at the end, they're going to be fine with it. You 
cut out the part where I wipe my nose. You're good. Um, <laughs> with allergies. Um, I get it. So yeah, I, the balloons were literally a shield at that point. I'm like, what happens if I get rid of that shield? And that's where the mentalism came in. Because even though you know I use playing cards and I use notepads and other things as a mentalist, right. it really, really is in the end the audience doesn't see the props. It comes down to literally a connection between me and another person. And as a neurodivergent weirdo, that's why I've been trying to get to my whole life. I've been trying to use art and balloons and magic to connect with people. And now I've got this wonderful moment where, and I'll be honest, if, if you're knowledgeable in magic, none of my stuff's impressive. Everything I do is easily purchased from a magic shop or found in one of the books. Um, but it's, it's the tool that I use to create a really amazing moment with somebody. And when that connection happens, oh, oh my God, that's the best thing in the world. That's what I've been looking for my entire life. And because I'm being genuine and sincere with it, the connection on their side is just as strong. Right. Because um, I, I have a friend who is very much to thank for this. Her name is Maggie McMuffin. She's a East Coast performer, does burlesque shows and things. Mm -hmm. uh, Maggie... I was going to do a variety show, and the other two producers on the show knew me, knew my work. They're like, he's in, we're greenlighting him. And she found out as a mentalist, and she didn't know me or my reputation. And she was like, hey, I know the other ones love you. I would really like to see you audition, because I haven't seen you. I'm like, you know what? This is this is her show. That's totally sure. fair. Um, and literally, like half an hour before the audition I did for her is when I realized why she wanted me to audition because most mentalism when it's performed is invasive. Correct. Right. And she didn't want, she, she's a very big advocate for consent. And I love that about her. Makes and she, sense. she helped me become more aware of that. And I realized like that was her big hang up is that I'm going to get somebody up and create that icky feeling. And that really helped form the whole psychic buster thing early on that everything is consensual. It's consensual mentalism. Right. I, I'm not going to go into your mind and pull out your social security number and your credit card and some childhood trauma. Right. I'm, we're just going to have fun. So I use playing cards because they're stupid and they're mundane and I'm mm -hmm. not going to find anything important. Even though it's a magic trick, I don't want you to feel like I'm doing anything Correct. weird inside your mind. I think that's so, great. So Maggie was awesome for that. And then... Yeah, it sort of all converged. The, the awakening of <laughs> me being a neurodivergent weirdo, the awakening of wanting to be myself on stage and have that be enough, and wanting to connect with people. And so it created this thing where it's mentalism, but it comes from a very vulnerable place where I, I tell the audience, this isn't about me trying to show off. It's not about me trying to read your mind and pull your thoughts out. This is about connection. Right. And we're going to spend the next half hour, 45 minutes, whatever it is, completely consensual. You, I don't pull anybody up on stage without their permission and telling them exactly what we're going to do. Right. But if you're willing to play along, we're going to have fun and maybe make a really cool connection along the way. Your story is so special and different, but not in an unusual way. I would, I would absolutely watch the after-school special. <laughs> and again, if you know, you know. That's, yeah, a, different, yeah, that's, that's a very specific yeah. reference point. But <laughs> I think your level of self-awareness is something that we all could strive for. And it's because you have done the work to figure out where you want part. to go. And that's what I'm going to say. It's exhausting. 
mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, and I, there's so many notes to take away from our discussion today. Can you give a few pearls of wisdom for somebody who may want to go down your entertainment path or go down your professional path? Something, you know, we've covered so much here that I think there's plenty to take away, but is there any, you know, something we haven't covered that you would love to have known in all the experiences that we've discussed? Oh, yeah. That would have been really helpful to be able to at least be a turning point. So you can, I think the biggest thing that I've learned through these conversations is we aren't told we're enough. And I don't mean that in the buzzword, you know, emotional, like, let me, you know, trigger your tear ducts, but we're not told that we're enough because as you've kind of talked about, you thought you had to be a character mm -hmm. and you went through this incredible journey to become the successful person who just has to be themselves. Yeah. And we don't, aren't taught that from a young age. That's not something there. So what are some of the pearls of wisdom that you might be able to have pass along to somebody who is trying to do this, wanting to maybe get into improv, maybe wanting to get into uh, com comedy or ma magic or whatever, anything to that effect? Uh, one, do the work. And I mean that both as a performer and as a human being. Um, you're going and studying with the groundlings. I, and I realized very quickly, I'm bad at improv with other people because I'm a neurodivergent weirdo. And in improv, you build on each other. Mm. And so you're part of what makes improv work is you're doing something that your teammates probably would have thought of as well. And so they're, they're already a step ahead of you in knowing how they can react to that, right? And I'm the guy who, not intentionally, but I have something out of left field that I thought was the obvious choice that nobody else thought was the obvious choice, right? right? So that throws the scene off. Um, but yeah, doing improv because that, that's the thing that showed me I didn't have to be in control all the time. I didn't have to have, like, I see a lot of performers and especially magicians, they have this very tight script. And if something happens that's not in their script, they'll like pause and wait for that thing to stop and then go right to the script without acknowledging like it's just this little blip in their performance it's like no if something ha you have to acknowledge that that has to become a part of everything you're doing now right because we all saw it we're, we're not going to collectively forget that thing so again being present being in that moment so yeah do the work take it even if you don't aren't doing improv as part of what you do or don't think you're doing improv as part of what you do Take the improv classes, take the comedy classes, study clowning, study even magic. Because for me, a lot of times I'm not using magic as magic. I do a lot of things where I use magic as theater effects because mm -hmm. I'm a solo performer, right? right? So I can like have a thing where I touch a prop and sparks fly off of it, or I can have something start smoking because I've studied magic for the last 45 years, right. and I have this knowledge of theatrical techniques that I can use to add real-time special effects to a performance. So study everything. Study every kind of performance you possibly can, because you never know what's going to become integrated into it. And also as a performer, do the work of, yeah, therapy and read self-help books and find real friends who are willing to call you on your bullshit, because that's one of the best things that ever happened to me. And it took me a long time to get to the point where I could appreciate those friends, but they, they were as much a part of my transformation as anything else was. And I think that's it because you, that's even something that we've also learned in the modern world is, um, while, you know, as we've always been taught, blood is thicker than water, but chosen family can be the strongest bond Absolutely. that you have. And it has to do just what you said. They are people that know you, that you trust and that trust you to call you on your bullshit and vice versa. And it's tricky. It, it, it will take you a long time. Don't, don't expect to find those people 
right away. That, that tribe's not going to be waiting for you automatically. Right. You have to find the people who aren't so enthusiastic about what you do that they can't be honest with you. And then you've also got the people who are just going to critique everything and tell you they're, they're trying to be helpful, but they're just there to tear everything down. Right. And yeah, finding that little niche in between of people who actually get you and also have good taste to know if you're doing something right. True. No, no, I think, but I think that's a huge component because so many times we are taught to either be too nice mm-hmm. or as you just said, well, it's who I am and I'm just blunt. No, that's not, no, that's not nice. That's not fair. And it's also taste. I mean, like, yeah, if, no, if you're a magician and the people who you're going to just have bad instincts about what good magic is. Right. So, yeah, the, that little narrow alley. And the other big piece of advice, and, like, if I could go back in time and tell myself one thing, mm-hmm. start. Stop waiting. Stop okay. waiting for the pieces to be in place. Stop waiting for everything to be perfect. Stop waiting for that moment. Just start. Because I wasted, I, I didn't pursue being a full-time performer until I was 30. Okay. Because I kept waiting for everything to be just right. I kept waiting for an opportunity. I kept waiting for me to have the right set list, the right tricks, the blah, blah, blah. Right. And it was never going to be perfect and right. You're going to make mistakes in the beginning. So just make them. Get out there and do it and be. know that no matter how prepared you are, at the minimum, the first year you do something is going to suck. The first year of Psychic Buster sucked because I didn't know who he was yet. Right. And I wasn't confident enough. And I, for a while, I did try doing it as a character because I, that voice in the back of my head was like, you can't, you can't right. be that on stage. You, you've got to do something else. So even, you know, with my whole journey, I still fell back in those bad habits and had to learn to strip all that away again. But yeah, just start, start. Be okay with the failure. Be okay with something sucking at first, but start because the sooner you start, the sooner you're going to get to where it doesn't suck and you can actually do what you want to do. And not to excuse it away, but that adds to your memoirs when it comes time to write your book. Yeah. yeah. Because if you did start and you did have those, I'm just going to transcribe this whole interview. No, you should. You really should. I think that'd be fantastic. Um, speaking of that, coming soon from Harper Press. (laughs) He even has his own thing. Okay. I like penguin books, but that's just me. Uh, (laughs) Um, with all that, let's talk briefly about you because we have met through our own community, which, you know, are people who listen to this week. I would Nick Polly O'Keeney, uh, either on KFI AM 640 or as the podcast now know, I'm a huge being born on Halloween and being a part of the Halloween horror and haunt community. Um, that's kind of how we met. I mean, yeah. that specifically is how mm-hmm. we met, but there's so much more to what you've been doing. We've covered so much today, but you have monsters kids club and you have something very exciting coming up in the near future. If you're comfortable sharing, by all means, have at it. Um, but, Damn. uh, you know, what is there for, you know, where is kind of, where can we see you experience you? What's coming up for Buster? Um, well for monster kid club, that was just for me being a monster kid club. If, if I could have had other kids or other people who loved horror around me and loved monsters, that would have been so cool as a kid. That would have been the greatest thing. And now, especially, and you've seen it in the horror community too, there are so many parents. Like I, there was one family that came to Monster Kid Club and they've got a three-year-old and she just had the best time yeah. ever. Loved it. And I was talking to them after the show and like, yeah, she's the horror fam. We don't really like it so much. Like, hang on, hang on. Mom and dad aren't horror fam. No, this three-year-old decided that she loved monsters. 
right. from like age two. And so her parents take her to Midsummer Scream and take her to all these horror events because they're supporting what she loves. How right. awesome is that? Which is incredible. And I think right. just to tie, tap in that briefly, so many people will hear this and say, oh, that's desensitized. You know, she's been desensitized or whatever. She's a kid. And right. the point is, some people like Monsters, Inc. from Disney. Some people are like Boo. And some people relish that world like we do. So to be able to have a space, a safe space for that young lady to be able to do it, just like you said, if there were people and a place for, you know, you at that time period, yeah. the development and the time you would have started likely would have been eons before you did. Oh, yeah. So I'd, I'd be Copperfield rich by now if I'd started back then. I, um, and I wouldn't even know him. So <laughs> we wouldn't be. I just so made time for you. Now. Yeah. Oh, I thank you. I appreciate it. I was like, we would maybe <laughs> know each other in passing. Yeah. But. And for anybody who's like, oh, kids, you shouldn't show kids monsters that young. It happens accidentally sometimes. My grandparents, yeah. I used to stay at my grandparents' house on weekends sometimes. Okay. And inevitably they would fall asleep. I'd sleep in bed between grandma and grandpa. They had a huge bed and they had a little tiny black and white TV on the dresser. That, okay. But before all this internet stuff, there were TVs and some of them were very small and the pictures were black and white, like grayscale, not, not actually color. Anyway, that was for the younger listeners. I get it. Um, so we'd be in the bedroom watching that and they would fall asleep somewhere halfway through the news. And then I'd be wide awake at age three watching whatever movie came off after the news. So a few years ago, I decided that there were some major gaps in my horror education that I had to fill. Yes. Okay. So I started watching some of the real classics, uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Yes. Psycho, which yes. I, I'd already seen, but went back and revisited right. it. Uh, House on Haunted Hill. Okay. Spider Baby, one of my all-time favorites. And all of a sudden, all of these memories were unlocked because I had completely forgotten the movies I was watching. I watched all those movies when I was three. I watched all those movies at age three, what laying in my grandparents' bed while they were asleep. Absolutely wild. I mean, it isn't just like unlocking and leveling up. It's literally, like you said, right. you're tapping into the past. That's wild. And like it, it, and I'm sure Nick can back me up on this. It, you can make the hypothetical argument that kids shouldn't be exposed to that stuff. Sure. But the truth is, some of the most gentle some of the most empathetic people i know are horror fans and the vast majority of vegans i know the vast majority of ethical vegans that Correct. i know are horror fans right <laughs> no that's true and i think even to go even deeper to some people that you would maybe know uh guillermo del toro is hugely an advocate in so many ways and such a good person mm -hmm. and so gentle and so, and having, you know, we've crossed paths many, many times. And I think the amazing horror films and the really unique, you know, labyrinth and everything else that he's put out, yeah. which are what goes on in people like Buster in my mind. The imagery that comes Correct. out of that man's head. Exactly. And then to know that yeah, he's, he's one just... of, I would consider, I mean, he's not a giant, but he's a bigger dude. And like, he's a gentle giant. He really is. So like you said, the ethical vegans are also the ones that are out there that can create a gory experience. I love that. But it's also to <laughs> tell a story. And I think that's it. While there may be always that issue around gratuitous violence. Okay, sure. I understand the Eli Roths of the world or whatever the situation right. may be. And there's room for it. And I find enjoyment in it. But sometimes, you know, a splosh film or, you know, a slasher film can be a little too much. Uh, what we're talking about here is not that. No. What we're talking about here is genuinely well sussed out things, or even like you've talked about with, you know, the spider baby, more down that class B style right. of a horror film <laughs> and them and it, and uh, you know, our, they came and all the different yes. things that came, all those amazing things that if you've ever been to Walt Disney World and gone to sci-fi theater, any uh, the things, sometimes you find it if you live here locally on the CW, KCAL, or KTLA, sorry, Channel 5, um, you can still catch them. And it's kind of wild that way. But 
So Kids Club, but let's talk about what's coming up for you. You have something very exciting that is coming up in the very near yes. future this year. And we just found out, or I just found out about it from you. So tell us about that. All right. So, so the transition from kids entertainer to mentalist. And part of that also is like seeing the kids who I did library shows for 10 years ago, holy crud, 20 years ago right. now, and seeing them as grown-ups. And it's like you and I had Pee Wee's Playhouse and things yeah. like that. And I feel like a lot of those kids don't have that nostalgic thing to look back on. So I, I'm kind of like trying to create a retro nostalgia where I'm creating a show that's for my grown-up kids now. Totally makes the sense. The kids that age out of Crazy Uncle Buster and Buster Balloon, I want something for them where we still connect. Yeah, you're, but you're also providing that kid at heart situation. So Absolutely. I understand what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. So, so it's more of an adult show. And yeah, Psychic Buster is pretty much what I'm doing full-time now. I, I'm still doing kids shows, still doing libraries because that's my heart. But I also really love doing the quirky, weird adult stuff. And uh, I am taking Psychic Buster to the Hollywood Fringe Festival this year. Which is absolutely one of the most exciting things I have heard in the recent past. If you are not familiar with Hollywood Fringe, you have to be living under a rock. <laughs> because it is where some of the most unique performances, the most dynamic experiences with people who you may see in film and television now, who make appearances or people at the Fringe Festival will show up in the next five or 10 years doing incredible things. And it's so unique and such a special, different festival here. Now, what are you going to be doing specifically regarding that? I know you don't have everything sussed out quite yet, but it's going to be Psychic Buster. And the nice thing is because it's a 45 minute show, I have time to go into a lot of the neurodivergent stuff because even though I, I make no claim to actually being a psychic, um, but there have been moments throughout my life where I realize like I said, with improv, where I see that weird out of left field thing that nobody right. else sees, and it seems obvious to me, even though nobody else saw it, um, combined with the theatrical magic I do, there are legitimate times where my brain sees patterns that other people don't, and I see things in people that they don't, and that helps create some really cool moments. Um, so doing mentalism, but also being able to talk about how being neurodivergent has literally led me to that and also enhanced the things that I can do as a mentalist. That's really, really impressive. And as we get closer to the Hollywood Fringe Festival, which happens uh, in the summer, kind of coming out of spring into summer, uh, you can check out This Week at with Nick.com, Nick Pagliocchini, and This Week at with Nick on Instagram. But where do we find you, Buster, in the meantime? PsychicBuster.com. Got it. PsychicBuster.com. That's where I am. And PsychicBuster on Instagram. I don't do the other social medias as much. Sure. Instagram's my, my go-to. It's my, it's my bread and butter, um, too. Oh, and I, I wanted to, because I wanted to show you something cool, because yeah, we're please. talking about the show and everything. Um, so, so I've been working on metal bending, like spoon bending. It's, it's, really? that is now just over 50, like we celebrated the 50 year anniversary yes. of the creation of metal bending. Right. Yuri Geller, who's a magician, by the way, don't fall for any of his crap. He's a magician. That's it's a, all sleight of hand, right. I swear. Yes. He hangs out at the Magic Castle. Legit. Um, so, uh, Yuri Geller is the one who introduced the world to metal bending where he made spoons and keys and forks and things right. bend with the power of his mind, allegedly. Yes. Um, and there was just a wonderful book that came out called Bend It Like Geller. That's about okay. the history of metal bending. Not Bend It Like Beckham with soccer, but <laughs> exactly. Bend It Like Geller. Um, okay. So I've been practicing that and it, it still takes me a very long time. Okay. Okay. Um, so the concentration, the focus, the bends, it takes me a really long time. Um, so I brought this. Uh, that one took me about a half an hour. I didn't, I realized we wouldn't have time for that right. on screen. So I just pre-bent that one for you, but that's for you. <laughs> Thank you so we'll, much. There'll be more of this in the Hollywood Fringe show that I do. That is so incredible. And so yes. definitely be sure again. Totally did it with my mind too. I that, know. I have there were no, no there were no tools or 
anything like that. And no I washing, didn't, I didn't, no dishwashers, I didn't no. put a big gouge in the kitchen table that my wife's mad about now. Yeah, I was going to um, say. Yeah, but no, totally with my mind. I made that happen. This is absolutely incredible. <laughs> so again, psychicbuster.com. Uh, Psychic Buster on Instagram. And then, as always, this week I with Nick Pagliocchini. I'll keep you updated on what psych, uh, Psycho... <laughs> Freudian slip, maybe? No, not quite. What Psychic Buster is up to. Uh, coming up again with the Hollywood Fringe Festival this summer and so many other things. Ooh, Buster. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself. I know, I was like, I didn't think I was going <laughs> to be stabbing myself here in your, your pre-bent metal. Anyway, thank you so much. I appreciate thank it greatly. You. I really And we really that. look forward to seeing you out there this weekend. Thanks. <laughs>